Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 21st, 2020. This is episode 2693 of the Survival Podcast. And today is Tuesday, and Tuesday is usually and will be today a Just Jack show. We're going to, we're going to take a subject, we're going to break it down, and we're going to break one down that... Um, some of you may be tempted to skip the episode, and I'm going to beg you, as always, not to. Um, if you actually start giving it a shot and it really doesn't work for you, then go ahead. But I find so often, I, this is why I ask you to not skip the shows, just because you don't necessarily think that the topic at hand is one you're really, really interested in. Uh, number one, because today's show is about marketing and sales, and I know that's important for you. But two, since it's about marketing and I want to market effectively, I'm going to ask you to stick around. I'm going to give you a call to action. That's part of marketing and sales. Um, but more so, the reason that I, I, I do this now, I didn't used to. When I started this show 12 years ago, I just threw shit out there and figured people will listen to what they like, and they won't listen to what they don't like. And as long as I put out two or three shows a week that the average listener likes, they'll stick around. And that does work. I started getting emails. I don't really think that this topic is anything that I was really interested in, but I gave it a shot and listened to it, and boy, I learned so much. Thank you. I've gotten literally thousands of emails like that over the years, so I know that a lot of times it's the ones you don't think you need to listen to that can do the most for you because of feedback from the audience, which is part of the marketing process that helps you build a better business that we'll talk about today. It all, see, it all spins together. Anyway, before we get into today's topic, which I assure you might be the most important modern survival topic in the coming decade. It, it, I know that might sound like a lot, but, you know, like, oh, of course he thinks that because he likes it. No, no, I'm just telling you, and, and I think by the end of this show, you'll feel that way. Before we get into that topic, let's go ahead and uh, talk about our two sponsors of the day today, a little marketing for them. How about ready-made resources, all the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website, a company that does what it says and says what it does, which is one of my rules of marketing. Do what you say and say what you do. Uh, ready-made resources has been doing that for well over a decade with this audience. Check them out today at readymaderesources.com. Next up, knifekits.com. What I love about knife kits is they encourage you to do something. And they encourage the development of skill sets and hard skills like woodworking and metalworking and basic hand tool use and using epoxies and things like that. It's a great skill set to develop with your kids. There are a lot of kids today, they, they don't know how a screwdriver or a ratchet or a piece of sandpaper works. Don't let that happen to your kids, man. Do a project with them like building a knife. And uh, you know, as an entrepreneurial topic, we're talking about you know businesses today, a lot of people get into that hobby and they find it makes a great little side business or sometimes even a full-time business. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Um, with that, let's start off with a quote of the day today. And I was browsing through quotes about sales and um, I found this one by a uh, well-known uh, sales trainer, uh, Philip Kotler. And he said, the sales department isn't the whole company, but the whole company better be the sales department. And to make that one make sense, I'm going to tell you a story of a, a gentleman named Jim. I can't even remember his last name. I, I worked for, worked in his organization for a pretty short period of time. He was uh, about two levels above my boss when I was a regional sales VP for Microtest, which was very quickly bought out by a company called Fluke Networks. 
So I didn't get to work with Jim for very long. He did interview me, and I really thought he was a great guy. Um, right after I got hired, we had one of the big meetings where everybody comes in from all over the country to corporate headquarters, and they have a big banquet and shit like that. And Jim was talking, and Jim said, Will everybody in our sales department raise your hand? And I and three other regional sales VPs raised our hand. And each of us had an inside sales representative that worked for us at corporate that handled the inside sales component for us, and they all raised their hand, and that was eight people. And there was over 500 people in this company, and those eight people rose their hands. Now, each of the sales managers, so you understand, was managing somewhere between 30 and 45 to 50 sales representatives, but they were all from manufacturers' rep firms, so they were not in attendance. So we had a pretty big sales force the four of us managed uh, with support of the inside salesperson. And he said, I want to tell the entire company something right now, except the eight people that raised their hands. Shame on you. Every single one of you, if you actually care about your job and your future here, should be selling this company whenever you're given an opportunity to do so. But now I want those eight people to stand up. Stand up, stand up. And like, you know, you're kind of like, oh, shit, I don't want to do this now. Light on me. And, yeah. so we, but everybody stands up. And he said, in, in World War II, Winston Churchill said of the men who fought the war, never have so many owed so much to so few. And he said it might sound a bit excessive when I say this about the eight people you're looking at right there. But while that quote does not apply to them for anywhere near the same reason, they're not getting shot while they're out doing uh, their jobs. And it is just their jobs. Look around you. Look around right now. And like people don't start, and Jim was tough dudes. Like when they, like, I'm telling you, I want, you better be looking around or I'm going to be calling you in for a performance for me. Like stuff like that, right? To get people, look at every single person here that's not standing up. Okay, now look at those eight people. Every one of you owe the food that you put on your family's table to those eight people. Because without what they do, we can build the best product in the world. And if no one buys it, all we do is go bankrupt. And none of you have a job. And he was trying to make the point that they needed to sell too. I don't think it went over his head. But the reason I bring that in, along with this quote, the sales department isn't the whole company, but the whole company better be the sales department, is most of you, when you go into business, are going to be in very small companies with a few people, or you're going to be solopreneurs, right? Solo entrepreneurs. And if you are a solopreneur especially, the only person who can sell is you. And the only person who can market is you. And you might even be able to outsource some marketing and things like that. But in the end, you are responsible for your sales and marketing. And as you're going to see today, that is the most important component to your success. So the reason that's the case, and a good place to, to look at this, to understand what I mean when I say most entrepreneurs fail. And they fail because of a lack of sales and marketing skill and a lack of execution on sales and marketing would be, first of all, to be totally clear, I'm talking about people and product and business that has the opportunity to succeed in the first place. In other words, so the person is willing to do enough work, so it's not going to be a lazy issue, and what they're selling is something that there is a market for or there could be a market created for uh, and successfully, and there's enough profit in it that it's worth doing. So this is a business model that, if done correctly, should succeed. Okay, if it's there's a lot of technical errors, uh, lack of demand for product, incompetent individuals, uh, shitty product, etc. That can sink a business. Assuming the product is valid, the individual is capable, and the work ethic is there, 
and the, the margins in the product are sufficient to provide a profit, the business should succeed. The number one reason that those businesses like that fail is failure to execute proper sales and marketing. And it, I love breaking things down to their most fundamental levels or processes. And any business really only has four full, complete, whole processes. And every single thing that you do will fit in one of them. So, like, one is production. And so you say, well, what about quality assurance? Quality assurance is part of production. Right? And, and so your, your four components to any business product, and it doesn't matter if it's a widget that you manufacture and you ship to somebody, or it's a software product that somebody downloads, or it's a membership product like iSell, it doesn't matter. You have to produce it. And so you might be well, like, what about maintaining it? What about updating it? What about making it better? What about the next generation, the 2.0? That's all production. Everything that goes into the product's maintenance, building, upkeep, regeneration, expanding product, it's all some form of reproducing it. The number two is marketing, which we'll get into in a second, but you have to market the production. You have to get, generate interest in the production. The third process is sales, and it is distinctively different from marketing. Marketing generates the interest. Sales converts the interest into a buyer. And the fourth is delivery. So if you're like, well, what about customer service? That's part of your delivery. Developing the, pro the customer service program, that's production. Executing it is delivery. Very simple. It's four processes. That's it. And I don't care if your business manufactures rockets that go get sold to NASA to launch satellites into space or your business produces a little tool for people to use in the garden. It still comes down production, marketing, sales, delivery. Now, what most people are familiar with from a standpoint of the revenue aspects of a company are product and delivery. So production and delivery. When we go buy a product, we're largely unaware of all the marketing that has been used to generate our interest in the product. So even if the company that makes the product did no marketing, if there's generalized marketing creating an interest in, let's say, stereo headphones, we go searching for the product of stereo headphones because of marketing. Well, no, because my friend had some, and I, that's marketing. That's viral marketing. Okay. So we, we tend to just kind of, like because marketing is so effective, we don't even see it. And when sales is really effective, we don't even feel it. It's like being, it's like being cut with a knife by a professional. You don't even know you were cut until you see the blood. And it's not nefarious like that, but it kind of works the same way. Good salespeople never feel to the person they're selling to as though they're selling. Right? And then, so we're familiar with the process of the product. And then once we buy the product, we want it. So we're, we're, we, we tend to think about delivery. So when somebody goes into a business, and let's take a classic business somebody from this audience might go into, a market garden, growing vegetables. Ten, twenty different things. If you're smart, maybe a dozen. High-dollar products. And so now we're growing greens and maybe some tomatoes and some other vegetables, right? High production. High, we've actually picked a good product. These are vegetables that people buy right now. So they'll focus on the production and how to deliver the product, how it gets packaged. They'll, they'll focus on, well, I'm going to sell a box in a CSA. And they'll largely ignore the marketing and the sales. 
And when they do try marketing sales, it's the thing they have the least experience with. If you don't come from a sales and or marketing background, and you come out of a typical job, somebody else handled all the sales and all the marketing for you if you weren't actively engaged in doing that. And if the only thing you did was, let's say you did telephone sales where somebody else created the lead and all you did was really read a script, you could have been perfectly executing a sales formula and never even understood how you did it. So it stands to reason when people come into a business, they come with, in general, an absence of the understanding of sales and marketing. Maybe even they come in with a really high um, operational understanding of business. They know project management. They know customer service. And sales and customer service have some overlap, but really customer service is a delivery component. If I'm servicing you as a customer, you've already purchased or you have purchased in the past. When I'm selling to you, I'm triggering you to make a buy you would not have otherwise made. When I'm marketing to you, I'm generating interest in something you otherwise would not have been interested in. So to fully grasp that, let's talk about my absolute definition of sales. And I am not an arrogant person. I know sometimes because I'm confident I can come off as that way. So when I say it's an absolute definition, it's not. I'm not the one that decided that. One of the most People, the people that I have the most respect for in the world of business is a former partner of mine named Neil Franklin. Neil Franklin is one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs that I've ever had the pleasure to know in real life. He, this is a guy, he won the Branson Award twice. No other company has ever won, no other entrepreneur or company, the same company, won the Branson Award twice. No one has won that award twice. He won it back-to-back. Obviously, if no one's run it twice, no one's run it, won it back-to-back. That is an elite-level award in business. So he's the one that when I gave him these, he said those are absolute definitions, meaning that you don't need anything else, and they say everything. And if you understand them, you can build an entire program from them or an entire course on how to sell and market from just these two definitions. My absolute definition of sales is transfer of belief, just three words. The way I sell a product to somebody is I transfer a belief to them that that product does what I say it does and that it will benefit them. I I don't need to know any more than that to sell a product. The absolute definition of marketing is telling a story. The way I market a product is I tell the story of that product in such a way that it generates interest. Telling a story. Tell your story. Transfer belief. That really is everything in the world of sales and marketing. That doesn't mean there's not a lot more to understand, but it will always come back. Remember, I like to break things down to their most simple parts. And let's start with marketing, because marketing, so many people, and I've I've talked about this before on the air, and I always say this, so many people have a tendency to say marketing and sales, as though they're the same thing. And it's like saying peanut butter and jelly are the same thing. Just because they go together really well does not mean that peanut butter and jelly are the same thing. What would you say to somebody who said, well, uh, peanut butter and jelly are kind of the same thing. So you're insane. One sweet, sticky fruit syrup made into a gel, and the other one is a legume that we call a nut mashed up into a butter. Those two things are not the same. You could not make peanut jelly, and you're not going to make grape butter. I guess you can make apple butter, but eh, you get my point, right? Peanut butter and jelly are not the same thing. Sales and marketing are not the same thing. So to really understand marketing and the effectiveness in marketing we ha- and, and, and how that all is just telling a story, we can look at 
Good history teachers will tell you everything you need to know about marketing in the way that they teach history. So let's do a little history slash anthropology experiment here and talk a little bit about humanity as a whole and our history as humans. Telling stories is the foundation of all knowledge that humans have passed down from generation to generation since humans developed language. That sounds like a big-ass claim. But what I'm telling you is, from the dawn of anything approaching a civilization, so I don't necessarily mean ancient Rome or the Byzantines or, you know, whatever, right? You know, the Greeks or uh, ancient Chinese large civilizations or the Mayans or the Aztecs. I'm talking about the point at which human beings began to communicate with each other and operate in tribes and small groups. From the point in time that man and woman stayed together in something that looks like a modern family and multiple families worked together, from that point forward, all knowledge that was handed down successfully was handed down in the form of stories because it's an eight to what we are and it's what we remember. So at the end of the day, when all those people would get together, they would gather around the ancient TV set, that's the campfire, and the elders would tell stories. And the children would learn from those stories. And if you go down to, if we even go into like the remaining indigenous cultures, like the aborigines of Australia, they'll have a place that they know how to get to. But you don't know where it is. And song and story will be how that place is navigated to. And a lot of those traditions, even in the remaining indigenous cultures, have been lost. But they, they held on for so long because of stories. In religion... Religion is successful due to its stories, right? So we all know, whether we're, whether we're Christian or not, almost everybody on the planet knows the story of Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, growing up, performing miracles, being betrayed by one of his own, being executed, and rising from the grave. Almost everybody universally knows this story. And every religion, we become myopic in our regional uh, viewpoint. You know, if you if you know anything about Buddhist religion, you know that it's largely rooted in stories. Or Hindu religion is largely rooted in stories. Zoroastrianism is, is largely oh, every successful religion is rooted in stories because it's how we remember. What does that have to do with history teachers? You know, history taught as a set of facts is flat and useless. So let's look at something that everybody knows about history because it's beaten to until you remember it. 1492. When I just say the year 1492, what do you think of? Christopher Columbus discovered America. And we can get into all kinds of disagreements about the Vikings were here first, the Native Americans, and he didn't really discover it. There were already people here. I, I understand that. But it is, there is no doubt that the year 1492 is a point where things in the world changed. It marks a point of change. There was the world prior to that, and there was the world after that. And the great era of exploration and exploitation of the northern and southern American continents began at that point. That's the bifurcation point. But did they really? Did they really? Like, was the world much different in 1493 or 1494 than it was in, like, 1490 or 1491? And the answer is no. It wasn't that dramatically different. Things were just beginning to start. And so the only reason that a person would even want to key in on that year is because it's a point in time we can identify. 
We can identify that time. But it's far more important that a student of history that wants to understand the context and the meaning and the impact of European exploration centering around that date understand what the world was like leading up to it, how the world changed after it, and what the world turned into because of it. And also understanding that had it not been 1492, sooner or later, somewhere around that time period, somebody would have done it other than Christopher Columbus. Right? Like This was something that it happened because it was time for it to happen. Whether it was good or bad or indifferent, it doesn't matter. Human exploration had reached a point where it was time for this to occur. If it hadn't, it would have been a lot like us going to the moon in 1969. Sure, we can go there and touch it and come back, but the moon is really no different today all these years later. There's no bases there yet or anything, and we weren't ready to develop it. We weren't ready to make the investment. Europeans were ready for that exploration. Again, I'm not judging it. I can say some really nasty things about it, but I'm, I'm observing it as a student of history. Like I can't go back and change it anyway. You know, it should have been this way or it should have been that. It doesn't matter. It happened. But the way we learn, the way we learn is not knowing the year. We learn the story. And often the story is a lie. We still learn from it. We learn the story of Christopher Columbus looking at the ships and seeing the ship come over the edge of the earth and realizing it was round, which is largely bullshit. Most people knew the earth was round by the time this happened, by the way. And there's, your, there's your little boiling frog metaphor destroyed today. Um... But anyway, we know that story and how he went to the king and the queen, and the queen saw something in him, and eventually he was able to get his three ships, and his three ships sailed for you know, all these weeks, and the crew was ready to mutiny and throw him overboard, which is also complete bullshit, never happened. That basically, the, the, the voyages were largely uneventful. <laughs> Nothing really bad almost happened. They just went, you know, and they did it, and then they came back, and they said, this is what we found. Right? But we add to these stories. But you know the story. And we can take anything like that. You can take the Civil War. and you, you can't break the Civil War down to it was about slavery and it was these years. Because what's really important to understand about the shape of America today based on our history is what was the country like prior to the Civil War, then during the Civil War, and then after the Civil War, and what changes occurred in that shift that were irreversible and led up to what we have today, and how did all those things transpire? And you don't know them because you learn dates and times and names. You learn them because you learn stories. And anybody who learns history is names, dates, and places only. Didn't learn history to the point if you gave them an examination on history that they did well on in school a few years down the road, they'll fail. We see it all the time. Because they didn't learn. But if somebody learns the stories because of the way the human mind works, they'll remember them and they'll be able to repeat them. Whether they're true or not won't matter. Welcome to Marketing 101. This is how we market. This is how we generate interest in our business, our, our product. We tell a story. Now, hopefully our story is true. Here's an example, though, of how I sell duck eggs for $8 a dozen when others in my own market can't get four. And that is I tell the story of my ducks. I tell the story of how my ducks are raised from little baby fuzzy ducks into great, big, wonderful, happy ducks. I tell the story of how they wander my property and they live on bugs. I tell the story of my customers who have had health issues, who have improved their health 
by using my product. I tell the story of why we got ducks in the first place, how they were different from chickens for our land, how our ducks are not only part of this wonderful product you can buy, but how they've helped restore a beat-up three-acre property and turned it into something beautiful. It's so much more than just a duck egg. And then you go on Craigslist and you look at our ad, and we don't even run ads anymore because we sell a lot less now. We don't have as many as we did back in the day when we were, you know, we were running 150 ducks. Now we're running like two dozen. So now we just sell to some leftover customers. We don't even have to try. But when we were moving, you know, 12 dozen a day in a high season, that's a lot of eggs to sell for eight bucks a dozen. I mean, that, there's some effort that goes into that. It was that story that made it possible. It was that story that made somebody just, you know, go on Craigslist, click a few links, look at it, and call us instead of Fred. This is I have his entire advertisement, his marketing on Craigslist. He used to show up right next to me all the time. I have duct eggs available, $6 a, do a dozen. Call Craig. Okay. And I know Craig's not selling eggs. Because if his ad's still there, he's not out of eggs. And anybody that saw my ad saw his ad, and they're calling me. They're calling my wife. And they're driving 30 miles to buy our eggs. And even some of the people, you know, you figure out, you know, where your competitor's located. Because on Craigslist it says right there, a little map, you can see it. And I, I realized that some of our customers could have driven to his place 10 minutes, and they were choosing to drive 40 minutes to mine. Why would you do that? Because you believe, ah, there's that word, you believe that the product is better. You believe that the treatment of the animals is better. You believe that the reliability of the individual you're doing business with is better. So in my marketing, in my marketing where I generated interest, I executed a sales process to the point where the customer is what we call in the sales process a laydown sale. They're so pre-sold. They're so pre-qualified. They're so pre-primed. The only thing you have to do is answer the phone and say, yes, you can come get them on Tuesday. Here's our process. And let me train you how to come do business with me. That is mastery of the marketing process applies to eggs. And what happens to people, and it's kind of sad, people go in and they work so hard to build a business, is they ignore a reality that's so obvious and so evident That when you say it, people are like, well, of course. And then you go, then why are you ignoring it? And that is, if you've never done something, you will have to likely work hard at it to become good at it. So you get a person who has never sold or marketed anything in their life. And they decide to go into business doing anything. And they focus on product and delivery because it's what they're good at. And it's what they know. And they become better at it. They get better at developing a product. And they get better at delivering a product. But they're unable to execute because they don't have enough people willing to give them money for their product. They don't have enough people willing to tell them why they're not buying. See, if effective marketing does more than just get people to buy your product. Effective marketing gets people right up to the doorstep and go, uh, that's not what I thought it was. It doesn't do this thing. It costs too much. It's so cheap, I question its quality. That's, that's a thing. When you look at a pricing curve, you look at how many sales you'll get, you would think as your price goes up, you'll sell less? No. In a competitive place, as the price goes up, you sell more and more and more and more and more, and then it plateaus. kind of reaches a bell curve top. It stays up there for a while. As you increase the price, 
it starts to drop a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then at a certain price it plummets. Well, if you're just too cheap, you don't know that you're too cheap if there's not enough interest for you to realize, hey, definitively, this jack guy's kicking my ass selling eggs for more than me. Maybe I need to just raise my price. Maybe that's part of my problem. Maybe people are going, if he's six and he's eight, he must be better. When the, when the price differential is such that it doesn't really change your customer's life, if they make a decision over a dollar, they probably decide to spend the extra dollar unless they know the products are identical. You're going to buy two things. One is $10, one is $12.99. All that you know is the price. They kind of look similar, but you know they're not the same. You'll tend to buy the $12.99 item, assuming you have money. And you want to sell to people that have money. That's kind of one of the rules of sales as well. You can't sell to poverty. You can't sell to poverty and you can't sell to willful ignorance. So you want to sell to the informed, including if you have to do the educating. And you want to sell to the wealthy relative to the price of the item that you're selling. If you're selling ramen noodles, somebody on welfare is wealthy. If you're selling Mercedes, your definition of the wealthy is different. It's all relative to the product. But we, we have people come into this world and they don't develop sales and marketing skills. They put no effort into it. They think that, well, I, I bought some advertising and I put up a website. And I put a shopping cart on there. People can buy from me. Could start. But do you have a story? If I went to your website, looked at your product, and somebody asked me about it, what would I tell them? What would I tell them? And if the answer is... I would tell them that, that there's a product over here that's a green widget, that's a really good green widget, and you can buy that green widget for $15. Wah, wah, that's wrong. If I go to your website, I should know who you are. Now, how personal you go with that, I don't know. It depends on the product and the space you're selling it in. But in general, for most small entrepreneurs, you need an edge. You need a difference. If it's just a thing, I can buy that on Amazon from 100 different companies. Why would I buy it from you? You, the, the response to somebody says, well, you checked out his website. Tell me about it. Well, he's this guy that. It might not be the exact phrase or even the way they go, but it should start out something like that. Let's say it's a, it's a food product. And he's a guy that was really overweight. And um, he was looking for a low-carb fill-in-the-blank. And he couldn't find a good one, so they made one. And his, even his kids like it now. Now, I'm not saying that's the perfect story. I'm saying, well, that's a story. You'll remember that. You'll remember that. Every effective marketing campaign tells a story, even when it's hokey and it doesn't look like it's a story. You know, when the person has the flashlight that won't light on TV, and then they have the rechargeable flashlight that always lights, and they tried to turn this one on, and oh, you know, middle-aged white people problems, can't work a flashlight, and then, oh, now I have a light. It's a story. The lady went to the drawer and got out the old light, and it didn't work. She went and got the new light, it didn't work. She shook it, and now it works. You're marketing, you're creating interest. Well, if you've ever went to the, the drawer and the flashlight didn't work because the batteries were dead, even if that's not the best flashlight in the world, the fact that you can shake it a few times and it'll turn on, you can find your other freaking flashlights and your replacement batteries, it might interest you. They told you a story. But see, when you have the kind of budget and media reach to get on Fox News and CBS and all that other shit. You can tell those hokey, stupid stories like that. 
And because of the law of large numbers and some mathematical formulas and access to things that you'll never have as a solo entrepreneur, you can make that stupid shit work. You can make that because it's completely formulaic. It's easily determined whether it's working or not. It's easily tweaked. Every piece of that process, they can adjust. And when they find it, it's a money machine. They turn it on until it stops producing money and they switch it to something else. You're not going to be able to do that. Not coming out of the gate. I mean, some of you will develop into the person that can market electronic products that effectively if you want to. But in general, a lot of you that want to build lifelong businesses, lifestyle businesses, i.e. that market garden we talked about, you're not going to do that. You can't turn and burn your customers. You have to farm your customers. See, those guys are hunters. And they're not like big game hunters. They're not out hunting, you know, lions or something. Or elk. Like, there's an elk. I'm going to eat for six months. I'm good. That's big game hunting. You take that into sales, you're selling a Ferrari. You sell a Ferrari a quarter, you're good. You're all right. You're a real estate, you sell one expensive house a quarter. You're all right. When you are out dove hunting, you got to shoot a lot of doves every week to stay alive if you're going to live on doves. So what happens is these types of businesses are like hunters. But they're, they're actually more like miners. They take, 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 and they don't care what happens. They're like the dove hunter that goes, limit 12, screw that. Gets one of the big old punt guns they used to hunt ducks out with and throws some corn out in the field, and when the doves land, and 80 doves are dead in one shot. That's how those guys approach things. You're, small entrepreneurs can't do that. If you do it for a time, you'll destroy your own chance of success. So you have to cultivate the customer base so that they come back to you. But more importantly, you have to tell your story so well that your, your customer will begin to tell your story on your behalf without you asking them to and in sometimes without even knowing that they're doing it. Because if you find a really great market gardener And you start getting this box of food every week. And I'm not saying this is the business to go into. This is, this is an example. Please, any business I ever give you in a show like this, it's just an example. You can apply it to anything. But we need a concrete example. We need to tell a story so that you'll remember it. So they get this little box of food, and they bring it home, and there's a tea jar in it, and there's all this other stuff, and, and, and their friends come over. And they serve dinner, and they serve a salad. And the friends say, this is a really great salad. She says, well, you know, not every bit of it, but like all the greens and the tomatoes came from this, this, this local farmer. People are going to tell that, right? And it's one thing if it's a local farmer, but if they actually know your story. He only lives down the road. He farms on a really little piece of land. Him and his family moved there a while ago, and they decided to start growing their own food because they weren't happy with the food they could get in the store. And they liked it so much they started up a little, little co-op or a little CSA or whatever it is. Guess what? They are marketing your business because they're telling your business's story. And they're telling it in a very compelling way. They can't do it if they don't know it. And they want to identify. See, in that situation, what you've done, you create a situation where that person wants to identify with you. They're proud, right, for good or bad. doesn't matter why. Because some people are really like, they just want to be seen as caring, and some people really are caring. But it doesn't matter. Their money all spends the same on your end. You're producing a quality product. You're taking care of the earth. You're taking care of people. You don't get to decide why they buy it. But whether the person really cares or wants to be seen as caring and socially conscious, they're going to talk about it. And then maybe something happens that is very powerful. 
the, the, the guest says, well, who are they? Can I buy from them? And they said, well, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Well, they only have like 50 customers, and I think they have a waiting list. But if you call them and tell them that you heard about them from me, maybe they can work something out for you. What just happened to the perceived value of your product, and what did you do to make it happen? You might be really like sitting back on a, well, you did nothing. That's the beauty of it. No. You did something. You just did it once. You set a system in motion that told your story so effectively that your existing customers can, can, can repeat it because they know it and they care about it. And whether that system is that your website tells that story so effectively that anybody that finds you for the first time, anybody that goes through the purchasing process has kind of walked through the story in some way so that it's automated, or whether that is whenever you take a customer, you have a memorized script, and hopefully it's not too script-delicious, right? Hopefully it's more of an off-the-cuff thing, but it's the same story every time because it's true, that you make sure that they're told. And if either one of those processes are in place, the active customer who becomes satisfied and reorders from you is going to repeat it. And once you do that, You've got it. Now, the only way you can screw it up is to screw up the sales process. That's the only way you can screw it up at this point. Is it, because now, you're going to have qualified customers that you're either going to have to screw up the product, the delivery, or the sales because you almost can't mess up the marketing now once it's gone that far. So we have to start out with how we develop our story. And what you really have to do to develop your story is you have to sit back and ask yourself, Number one, what is the motivation for this business? Why am I doing this? So if we look at Nicole Sauce, who's roasting coffee, she's a classic example of someone that has such a rich story. Just beginning with that question, why? And the answer is because she really loves good coffee. And she really loves coffee that you can't go to any store and buy, something that's unique. So much so that when she came to my property, one time for a workshop, She did a class on how to roast coffee just because it was an interesting skill. And she told people right then, she was selling a little bit of coffee on the side. I'm never going to go big scale. I'm not going to black like big commercial roaster. And, and as she was saying it, you can ask her. She'll tell you the same story. As she was saying it, you could see her mind shift. And she thought, and you, she paused and she had this kind of disturbed look on her face. And then she went on and did a great presentation. But I knew in that moment what happened. She realized at that second, I'm going to build this business. I can't, I can't prevent myself from building this business. It's impossible now for me not to do this. I have such a passion for this product that I'm going to do it. A lot of people misunderstand that kind of passion thing. And if you watch Shark Tank, you'll see guys like Mark Cuban shit on that passion all the time. Because they'll say, well, if there's not a demand for the product, well, no shit, Sherlock. If there's no demand for the product, all the passion in the world won't do it. That doesn't mean that the passion isn't a huge part of the marketing. So that story that Nicole's telling needs to start out with how much she loves coffee and the fact that not only did she love roasting coffee, but she realized she could roast a product and make a product that she couldn't buy any other way. And that needs to roll into the story of how she found the ability to procure 
the beans before they were roasted. And the process she goes through with sampling different product every year before settling on a final blend. Or individual countries roast. Because it's not just like, I'm going to have Tanzanian, so let's order some Tanzanian beans and roast them. And so let's order a small amount of five or six different Tanzanian beans. Let's roast them in different ways and find the best one. Because Starbucks isn't doing that shit. They can't. They, they make too much product. They have to use a quality assurance and a blend of everything to make it all taste the same. They don't want you to buy their Tanzanian bean next year and have it be different. But Nicole does. So that has to go into the story. So to develop your story, you have to ask yourself, start out with the motivation. If you have a market garden, why? Because Jack Spierko said to start a business? Probably not a good story. Because you wanted that food for your own family. Or something else equally compelling. And when, you, when, you, when the story goes into, and I just shared it with my neighbors, and they told me how great it was. And they asked me if I could have, they could have more. And I said, well, I only have so much. And they said, well, I'll buy it from you. See, now your story starts to form around that product. If it's a software product, and the story is I had this problem. I couldn't solve it with the existing solutions on the market, so I built this product. And if you are a developer by trade, I work for big companies. See, it's part of your story. I used to work for Microsoft, and I took this idea to them, and they were not interested. They didn't think it was a big enough product. And I realized that they were right. It wasn't big enough for Microsoft, so I went out and did it on my own. Or whatever. That's how you develop your story. You actually just tell it. But you've got to be real about it. Stop trying to think about motivations to buy in the story. The, the, the story is not designed to create a motivation to buy. It usually will as a byproduct. But you have to form it purely as it really is. It's almost like giving birth to a child. And then the way that you tell your story is very important. You have to decide, am I going to tell my story in audio, video, pictures? text and then you need to tell the story consistently across all of those things that's basic branding you, know, you could go to college for years to study branding but that's really what's important about branding that the story is consistent across the message platform that a person that finds you on twitter sees your twitter profile sees your tweets says this is the same person that has this website over here and has this youtube channel and put out this brochure and put this commercial on television. See, branding consistency is not just the logo looks the same everywhere. You know, branding people get caught up in meaningless drivel bullshit. Yes, the logo should look the same everywhere. <gasps> oh my God, this was printed and the printer messed up and the font is slightly different. Well, unless it's really different, no one's going to notice that shit or care. Would the person who already knows your brand look at that and go, well, that's Joe Blow. Okay, then you're good. The branding consistency needs to be in the messaging, the story, and, and the fundamental things that make your product unique. If it's quality, then quality needs to be everywhere. If it's availability, then availability needs to be everywhere. A big part of you know the marketing of Amazon is we get your product to you really fast. Sure, you might be able to get it for a dollar less on Walmart, but you know you'll get it tomorrow from us. Now, Walmart's compensating for that. That's what competition does. All of a sudden, lots of people are shipping product and having it to you within two days. But boy, there was a time with Prime and Amazon, the fact that you could have your product within two days and many days in one day, a lot of decisions were made to purchase based on that alone 
But they told, if you didn't know that, nobody told you that. See how that process was put in place? So whatever the value is, there's to be a consistent value message throughout your story. And then you need to develop that process. And you should automate as much of it as possible. And there's more than one way to automate things. We always think automate means technology. Let's say that your company is big enough that you actually have a couple part-time high school kids working for you. And they answer the phone. And they answer the initial question of, how do I do business with you? When you develop a script for them when they answer that phone, including the courteous part, the way they answer the phone, the whole thing, that story, this is a new customer, they need to know our story, gets blended in there. And you might want to answer the hard question, how do I buy from you, really quick. But you also might want to have, as long as the opportunity presents itself, the story gets told. And if a story doesn't get told and they come to your shop and pick it up, there's always the opportunity to tell the story about the product then. And if you train your employees to the point where they tell the story when they engage with the customer in a certain situation, it is the same as automating an email message. And it can be done to the point where it's almost as reliable. In fact, I would say in some ways it is reliable. Yes, I know that email message will go out the same way every time, but spam filters, etc. will intercept some. So your potential for error by human is probably less as a percentage of failure to reach your customer, right? So we're going to automate, whether it's by technology or training or process, as much as we can to make sure that that story is constantly transferred to the customer. And never underestimate the importance and the power of systems in a business, whether they're marketing and telling your story, sales and creating conversions, or process-driven for delivery. It doesn't matter. Automation that ensures consistency and procedures that ensure consistency are incredibly important. This is why when sometimes people say, well, I want to be on, on the show, I say, fill out, a, fill out a guest form. Well, you guys know me already. I'll just call Dorothy and she will tell you no. Well, I've been on three or four times before, and she will tell you no, because she has instructions. There's a process to be on the show as a guest. It involves filling out the guest form, I and, and by the way, completely, including the questions. That's your pitch to me. The fact you were on before and did a great job doesn't matter to me. I don't know what you want to talk about this time. Maybe like some guests, you want to come back and talk about the exact same thing to sell more of your books you sold last time. Wah, wah, you don't get on the air. You know, I'm not bringing a guest back to talk about the exact same thing. Because then they're in it for them instead of for you. It worked last time, I want to do it again. I understand your motivation, but I'm not going to do that. You might want to talk about a topic, and I might not understand exactly what you want to talk about. And if I don't have that form, I might say yes. Then I have a guest on, and I have no idea what we're talking about. And I'm in one place and they're in another. Not good. Especially if it ends up being, you're a crazy lunatic conspiracy theorist. And I thought I was going to talk to somebody about strategic relocation who understood what was actually going on. And you want to talk about crazy ass shit that my audience isn't into. So my process avoids that. I want to make sure that like all your social media and shit like that is all in the show notes so I can link to it for you. And I don't want to work hard to do it. I don't want to be sitting here on the day we do the interview with you texting me your shit to my phone and now I got to get that over to my computer. I don't want that. So I have an automated process that pops out a form to me. And I forward that to my wife. And she books you. That's part of the process. And if you have processes, then you can improve them. If you don't have processes, you never improve them. So here's how that works. 
here's the way we've improved the process. We found out that even though I'm whitelisted on my wife's email because she insists on using freaking Yahoo, that sometimes my emails to her don't show up or don't show up for a couple days or never show up. So once we determine that, like, why isn't this person booked and we have our own, you know, internal argument and realize I never got it, she goes back and checks her mail and there it is in the spam folder from three weeks ago or something. Okay, now we'll add to the procedure. So now I get it. I take the guest form and I enter a print command and it prints out on the, the, the printer in her office. When she goes in that office every day, one of her procedures is look on top of the printer. Is there anything new on there? And if that way, if that email didn't come through, she wants an electronic copy too, she can come to me and say, hey, this guest, they didn't show up. Now we have a fail-safe. See how that works? It's a process. Now, what does this have to do with marketing? In your sales process, in your production process, and even in your delivery process, you can have faults. Faults that if you fix them, you will sell more and have more happy customers and more repeat business. Makes sense, right? Marketing is the funnel that drives people to your store. It's the thing that makes people get right up to the point of saying, I'm ready to buy. And then they either do or do not execute the purchase. So simple that is. If you have enough people looking that you get the opportunity to communicate with and they're not buying, you will figure out the problem. You'll figure out the problem every time. It may be an insurmountable problem. You have maybe not qualified for this show as far as your business. It was a business that wasn't going to succeed. You're selling something that there's just no way you could make enough money on, even if you sell a lot of it, to make it worth doing. That can happen. Assuming that's not the case, whatever you're doing wrong, whatever is preventing the customer from buying or buying again, if your marketing funnel is sufficient, your customers will tell you what to change. You're not charging enough. You're charging too much. Your delivery is too slow. You need to insure your product. Here's another example. When I took Hemp Magic on as an MSB vendor, great company, great product, turned out people were getting the product stolen in the mail. They were having their product stolen. I gave them feedback, and they were able to eventually figure out two small pieces of corrective action. They were able to, number one, figure out charging a little bit more for shipping and ensuring the shipment would pretty much make the problem go away. Because once it was insured, it became the post office's problem, not the customer or the vendor's problem. And people that steal at the post office tend to know this. And if products start disappearing out of boxes that are insured, actual investigations, not pretend investigations, happen. And since it's a federal crime, people go to a very, very secure prison for a pretty long period of time. And it just ain't worth it. So pretty much postal thieves steal uninsured product most of the time, not all the time. The other thing was when something says hemp on it, in a day and age where everybody knows that CBD oil is expensive, people are more likely to open it. So by changing the name on their shipping address to like you know HMI or whatever and insuring the product, adding a few bucks to shipping, The problem went away, customers became happier, repeat orders became the norm instead of the exception. But until they had enough business, and we helped them develop that business by telling their story, they did not really understand the problem. 
they actually for a time thought they were being targeted because they had been targeted by government agencies and by activists who didn't like what they were doing. But what was really hitting them is simple human indecency and theft. And by taking two quick actions, those were corrected and delivery got better. Now, if the product wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, you would also need enough customers to tell you, I, I'm using, I was, I gave your product a chance, and then I used another product and it worked better. Without the marketing, you don't know that. You can't fix that problem. Maybe your customer's using the product incorrectly, using too much, too little. Until you get enough marketing, get enough contact, you can't fix that problem. It all hinges on the marketing funnel and sales conversion. And if those two things are working properly, everything else in the delivery and production process can be worked through. You know, as, assuming that it's a valid business that's not going to be put under by the big boys. You know, in many instances, even if it seems like it will be, if you're smart, you can carve out for yourself. Because what do you need? As a solopreneur, as a solo entrepreneur, you need what? I've talked about the model a million times. Came out of the music business. A thousand true fans. A true fan is somebody that says, I like these people enough that they stay on my radar. I will spend at least one day's salary with them a year. If you have that, you have a little bit more than three full-time incomes in revenue aggregated across your customer base. So if your average customer has a $50,000 income, you have about $150,000 worth of revenue with that model alone. And that's the advantage of being small. That's all you need. Now, not every business makes sense to have a thousand customers. Some makes sense to have a hundred customers that at least spend ten days with you a year. See how that works? And some you need a little bit more. Maybe you need a thousand that'll spend two days because of your cost of operations to make the numbers work. But it's all a mouse fart in the cosmos that is the, the grand marketplace. It's tiny. It's not that hard, actually, if you get these things right. And the reason this is so important, and successful, successful businesses it's very important for, there are so many businesses that they do make money. They make money. They make lots of money. They're very successful. And they're weak in their marketing and their sales. Their product, they're in, such a, they're in an industry that's so hot, or they have a product that's so hot, or they're in it almost by themselves. They're that first mover advantage. Who knows what? That they are successful in spite of that weakness. But there's two reasons they need to shore that up. First is, you could be more successful. You could be more successful. And if you're not, competitors eventually will overtake you. But the other side of it is, sooner or later, shit happens. A pandemic hits the whole country. Your sector gets bit in the ass. Who knows what? Unless you're optimally tuned, you will be one of the weak and the sick in your niche. And you go along, just like a pandemic, you go along, all the weak and all the sick seem pretty well. Then they get the Rona, and they end up on a ventilator. If your business is just getting by when times are good, it will get clobbered as soon as times turn. And sooner or later, they will. Here's an example of <clears throat> not really sales and marketing, but it is. This is a marketing tool, definitely. It actually is marketing. And in many ways, it's marketing and sales kind of overlapping. I got this email just by coincidence today from Paul Wheaton 
I'll read it verbatim so I'm not putting any words in Paul's mouth. When I, when I say what somebody else said, I like to be exactly accurate. Here's what he said today to me. <clears throat> he said, Jack, many years ago you advised me to start a mailing list with something like a Weber. It seemed like a huge chore that I just didn't feel like doing. So it was a couple of years until I did. With the last few Kickstarters, I was very strict about using a reference code for everything that I tried. About 500 reference codes for each Kickstarter. And each Kickstarter reports that 85% of the income came from my own emails. Just want to say thanks, Jack. You were right, and I was slow. That's an example of somebody who's thriving in an economic downturn because of process and automation applied to marketing. Because if I'm going to tell you a story, I have to be able to reach you. So things like email. And, and co people don't think they need email marketing, but need email marketing. We just had a fantastic contractor come in and do three doors for our house and a, and a window job and some other small things while they were here. Best contractor we've ever used. Incredible communication skills. Everybody that came here did a great job, including cleanup. They did exactly what they said they were going to be doing. They did it on time. They started when they said they would start. They completed when they said they would complete. And they made sure everything was perfect. They even had my wife fill out a form for a customer testimonial. Great. They sent us a thank you card. Great. To my knowledge, they do not have us on an email list. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Because all they need to do, if every satisfied customer is on an email list, whenever business gets a little bit slow, send an email that says, hey, we have a new vendor we're working with for our roofing projects. It's a big sale. You only need, each time you do that, one person to say, hey, I've been thinking about putting a new roof on my house. I you do my kitchen. I didn't know you did roofs. Sure. See that? The more successful you are, the more it's important, not less it's important, to stay in touch with this concept. And let me finish with why this is maybe the most important survival topic for this decade that we're in now. As I've been saying for a long time, you know, I'd say really started pouring this message on about 2014, so six years in earnest. This decade is going to be filled with more flux, more opportunity, and more devastation than any decade in living memory. You know, it may not quite be 1929 to 1939. It may not quite be that, but there's some people that were alive then. They weren't adults. They weren't adults. Most of the people that were adults and really lived through that time, that raised a family through that time, they're gone now. Just due to time. Just how it works. We're mortal. And even if you're not going to use the approach of, well, since things are going to be really kind of crappy, I'm going to have a side hustle, I'm going to have a business, I'm going to have a gig, whatever it is. You're going to stay an employee. The competition for jobs, promotions, and opportunity will be harder and tougher than it's ever been. And even if you have a job, the ability to get your ideas initiated inside your company will be more difficult than they've ever been. This is going to be a decade of hyper-competition to get anything done, to make any money, to have any success. The world has always been one of competition, but when you have less room at the top and less room in the middle, there's more competition for the space.
It's like playing musical chairs instead of you know 20 kids in 19 chairs. You have 20 kids in 10 chairs. When that music stops, everybody tries to put an ass in a seat. It looks a lot more violent than if you have only one person who can't find a chair. And the way that you're going to get your chair, in this metaphor, is you're going to sell yourself and you're going to sell your ideas. Being able to market and sell yourself and your ideas will be the most critical skill set that you can have in the next 10 years. And it's always been incredibly important. And I want you to think about how many times you have to do that in your life. When you, it's something as simple as asking someone out on a date. You're selling yourself and the experience. And when you go out on that date, you're selling yourself again. And usually we sell ourselves by telling our stories. Tell me about yourself. Right? When you try to get a job, you're telling your story and you're trying to close the deal. You're making a sale. That's why so many people suck at job interviews. They don't understand what they're doing. You're marketing yourself. That gets you in front of a hiring manager. And then when you get in front of that hiring manager, you're there to close the deal. And you're also there to set the terms of the deal. See, a good salesperson isn't just like, okay, sign here and bye-bye, and I'm done, right? Well, I want to sell you the extended warranty. I want to sell you the add-on product. I want to sell you our maintenance program. I want to make sure you buy the right product in the first place. I want to get you to pay as much as I can for this car, not as least as I can sell it for. And I want to make you feel good about it. That's how a job interview should be. I want to make you feel good about paying me the most amount of money that you can pay me. You know, we start people in this position at $21 an hour. That's nice. It makes me think of the story of a welder. It was a story that a welder went on a job interview. And they said they, they paid anywhere between $18 and $32 an hour. And part of the interview is they told the welder they wanted him to do a couple welds. And he said, sure, that, that makes perfect sense. That's how you know if I can weld or not. So he goes over, and his first weld is beautiful. It is artwork. It is one of the best welds that the company has ever seen. And his second gun at weld looks like a bubblegum weld. It is crap. And they said, what happened? And he pointed to the top weld and he said, that's the kind of welding I do for $32 an hour. And he pointed to the bottom weld and he said, that's the kind of welding you get for $18 an hour. That's how you want to be in a job interview. And maybe not always that much in somebody's face. But you should be able to articulate why they should go out of their way if they have to go back to their manager to get approval to pay you more that they should be doing that it should have already started you didn't call them yet how long are you going to need to get in touch with them because what I want to convey to somebody back when I would take jobs I won't do it anymore but back when I would work for other people my feeling was if I did my part right in the interview when I walked out of that room their first thought was God I hope he says yes Gee, I hope we can afford him. And man, I really hope he doesn't work for my competition. If I walked out of there and they weren't afraid of the consequences of me going to work for a competitor of theirs, I felt like I had failed miserably. And if I did my job right, I would get the maximum offer that they were capable of offering me. 
and that's how it always worked out. So whether it's as a business person, an entrepreneur, someone running a gig economy, internally within a company, finding a new job, transitioning careers, the ability to understand marketing through telling your story and sales by transferring the belief that you really are the person to do business with is the most important skill set. And you have to ask yourself why we don't teach this in school. This is more valuable than just about anything kids learn in school because kids can learn basic math, science, history, and, and writing and reading on their own. They really can. Like Very few people in, in the modern age are 20 and illiterate without some real extenuating circumstances. Very few people can't add basic math. You know, 2 plus 2 is 4. Do basic multiplication, division, subtraction. Very few people know absolutely nothing about history. Some people are pretty ignorant of some of it. And, and you know, like, people do these you know, viral videos where they go out and they find the dumbest of the dumb. Eh. They talk to 200 people to show you 12 that are really stupid. And a lot of times, those, even those stupid people, they caught them in a moment of a brain fart. And they were, and you know, because it was a cute little blonde chick in a bikini, it, it made her even look dumber because of our preconceptions, right? Most people... The things that you learn in school, they'll learn when they need to learn it, if they need to learn it anyway. But how many people truly come out of even college fundamentally understanding how to tell a story, transfer a belief, market themselves, and convey their ideas? And it's a very small number. In fact, many people that come out of college with degrees in effing marketing can't do it. I've had them work for me. They do exist. I promise you, they are not the exception. They are the generalized rule. Because we don't teach it this fundamentally simply. We don't teach it the way a good history teacher teaches you about the Civil War or Roman history. By telling you the story so that you'll remember it. Because stories are intrinsic to humans. And we learn better from stories than we do from any other form of learning. And that's why every single thing that stood the test of history as lasting knowledge has come to us in the form of stories. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider supporting the show and the work that we do. One of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You do your online shopping there, and you'll help us out no matter what you buy. I've got a great product for you today, though. Uh, I got a pricing alert today on one of my favorite inexpensive knives. This is the, the Mora Companion Heavy Duty Fixed Blade Knife. This is kind of their beefy bushcrafting knife. It's the beefed up one, the thicker steel, the better steel, got a little more backbone to it, a little more rugged handle, etc. Um, they actually make two knives that look very, very similar. They make this one, again, the Mora Companion, and they also make one called um, uh, the, the, the Mora Companion MG. So this is the Companion Heavy Duty, and they make the Companion MG, and they look a lot alike. The Heavy Duty knife is exactly what it sounds like. It's a beefier knife. It generally sells for 25 bucks, and the Companion MG, the lighter version of the knife, sells for 14.25. Any given day, you're better off spending 25 bucks for the heavy duty knife. It's just that much better. And at 25 bucks, you're buying, in my opinion, you're buying a $50 knife for $25. I mean, it is that level of quality. I've talked to more than one knife maker who's looked at that knife and said, "I cannot make a knife that good 
for $25 worth of material. I can't buy the material and make the knife for $25 my cost, let alone sell it for that. And it sells for $25 every day. Well, my pricing alert is $15. So it's about the same price as the cheaper knife for the better knife now. And at $15, if you don't own one of these knives, pick one up, make it part of your collection, and pick up two. I mean, $30 for two knives, come on. I mean, really. And then this is a knife that's not only a good knife, it's a good knife you can let your buddy use, and you don't get really pissed off when he doesn't know how to use a knife and he dings it up a little bit because it's a $15 knife. You might even you know, give a few of them away as gifts because they're great knives. There's one complaint you'll find about this knife on Amazon in the reviews. It rusted. I can't believe how much rust is on the blade. It's because it's metal, stupid, and metal rusts. It's a carbon steel blade. It's not stainless steel. That means if you put it away wet, it's going to rust. And since it's carbon steel, it's going to rust fast. It's also a polished, shiny carbon steel that when you pull it first out, it looks really cool. This is a working knife. This is not a show knife. This is a knife for using. So my opinion of any carbon steel blade that you're going to use as a working knife, you should put a patina on it. A patina is basically... It's almost a type of rust. It's a type of oxidation, which is rust, that then prevents additional rust. Not 100%, but it makes it a lot less likely to rust. And if you just use a knife like this and take care of it in time, it will patina itself. Various acids and things from your fingers and from its work will eventually cause it to form this patina. And when you see these really old knives, and they have kind of that dull, motled look to the blade, that's what that is. But you can put a patina on a knife blade, in a day. In fact, in a couple hours. You can use vinegar. And you can either suspend the knife in vinegar, so it's actually like in a little jar with the blade all under the vinegar, or you can do what I do, which I think is the easy way and uses less vinegar. Take a piece of paper towel, two or three or four layers thick, and wet it down so it's pretty wet with vinegar. Wrap the blade in it and leave it like that for a couple hours, then clean it off, hit it with a little blade oil, and you're good to go. And maybe, you know, a couple, three weeks into using it, do that process again. Maybe even three times. And eventually you'll get this kind of gunmetal gray. And it's a really simple process, and it's really, really durable, and it won't affect the performance of the knife at all, other than it'll keep it from rusting. And what a great project to do with your kids. Think of all the science you can teach them in this. You could actually find out the science behind why this works. And you could use it to tell a story to your kid, and they would learn something. And they would end up with a really cool knife that they made with their mom or their dad. You can find it all at tspaz.com. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with the song of the day. Today's song of the day is an audible. In other words, um, I took this the, the music... Brought to me by our program director, John Adam, and said, that's a nice suggestion. I'm not going to do it. I picked my own song. Yesterday we had a Charlie Daniels song, and today we have another one. And the reason we've done, we're doing that is it's twofold. One is, uh, I, didn't, I didn't say this yesterday, Charlie Daniels, of course, recently passed away. The man was a legend in music, and I really enjoyed his music growing up as a kid. I have seen Charlie Daniels in concert probably more than any other individual artist, and at, at not only by choice but also just by opportunity because Charlie played so many places where you could go see him for no cost the last time I saw him was about nine years ago at a balloon festival a hot air balloon festival in Hot Springs Arkansas I think the first time I saw him was at a huge like kind of country Lollapalooza concert before that was a thing in Jacksonville's Metropolitan Park and I was about nine years old 
I mean, that, that says something when you've seen somebody at that, that, that two edges of extreme and both times in an environment where you could go just hang out and be with a bunch of really cool people and, and do so at no cost out of pocket. He was just really good about doing shows like that. And so uh, I think we'll all, if we, anybody that really loved his music will we'll miss the fact that he's no longer with us and no longer making music here anyway. But this song I chose because, like many of his songs, it tells a story. And today's show is all about the power of telling a story. This is one of my favorite Charlie Daniels songs that tells a story. It's called The Legend of Woolly Swamp. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's a spot in the yard in the back of that shack where